You're listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden the awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. On today's episode, Duke University Medical Center's Dr. Andrew Wong speaks with the principal investigator of the live HCM study, Dr. Rachel Lampert, professor of medicine at Yale University. Dr. Lampert and Dr. Wong speak both broadly about the study and specifically about some of the results. For those exact results from the slides, click the link in the show notes or head to hcmsociety.org podcast. For full disclosure, Dr. Lampert is affiliated with Medtronic, Abbott slash St. Jude, and Boston Scientific. And Dr. Wong is affiliated with Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, and Biomarin. All right, let's get in the thick of it. Here's Dr. Wong. Thank you so much, uh, Rachel, for, for joining us on this. Andrew, it's such a pleasure to be here speaking with you and the HCM Society. So, Dr. Lampert, can you tell us um, what led you to design and do this important study? Well, um, thank you, Andrew. So the benefits of exercise, physical and psychological, are well known to us for decades. However, they're due to concern for risk of ventricular arrhythmias and sudden death, for many uh, populations with cardiac disease, specifically patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, exercise has been restricted for many decades. However, prospective comparative data uh, on the safety of vigorous exercise for uh, these individuals has been lacking. So we set out uh, on the Live HCM or Lifestyle and Exercise and HCM study uh, to determine whether engagement in vigorous exercise, including competitive sports, is associated with an increased risk for life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias or mortality in individuals with HCM who were followed prospectively for three years. Our inclusion criteria included uh, individuals with a diagnosis of HCM or those who were genotype positive without LVH, uh, i.e. phenotype negative. We had some uh, exclusion criteria, uh, in, uh, specifically conditions which precluded exercise, whether class uh, three or four heart failure due to the HCM or other types of conditions such as musculoskeletal issues. Uh, we excluded those with syndromic uh, types of infiltrative disease uh, that were not straightforward sarcomeric HCM. And uh, we were not able to include those who uh, could not complete the questionnaires online, such as those with language or cognitive uh, barriers. Uh, we had two avenues of recruitment. Uh, one of uh, was typical site uh, recruitment. We had 42 sites in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And we also had patients uh, who self-enrolled. So they uh, we disseminated inf information through patient advocacy organizations, including the HCMA, SADS, uh, and also through notification of physicians. And um, patients who heard about us and wanted to participate uh, could contact the central site, Yale, directly. For those patients, we um, confirmed their diagnosis and eligibility through chart review, and uh, we had a uh, we obtained their echocardiogram data on disk and had it read at a core lab at Mayo Clinic to confirm the diagnosis. We were enrolling patients between May 2015 and February 2019. When they were first enrolled, uh, the first thing we asked them to do was fill out some online questionnaires to get a sense of what they were doing. This was an observational study. Uh, we were enrolling patients across the spectrum of exercise from the sedentary to the moderate to the vigorous. And so the first thing we asked them to do was to fill out an online questionnaire based on the Minnesota Leisure Time Activity Questionnaire about what they were doing, how many hours per week, how many weeks per year, how many years they'd been doing it. And we then classified them based on that information into sedentary, moderate, and vigorous using standard definitions. 
Um, we obtain clinical data um, from the sites or from primary cardiologists, and we then um, follow them over uh, every six months uh, with a questionnaire that uh, asks them, have you had any of the following endpoints? Have you had, had a ca cardiac arrest? Have you passed out? Have you had an appropriate shock from your defibrillator if you have one? And then we also ascertain deaths. Um, Dr. Lampert, uh, did patients require um, clearance from their physicians to participate in this? And uh, were there any special tests that were needed to be done to um, risk stratify patients before they could enroll? So uh, patients could enroll uh, either through a site. So then their physician, you know, asked them to enroll. But also if they wanted to self-enroll, uh, they didn't need to go through their physician. For all patients, we uh, acquired information about their clinical risk profile through their records. Um, we did ascertain or confirm the diagnosis through um, an echo reading um, for those who were self-enrolled. But all the assessments um, we abstracted from their clinical records. And did patients um uh, have to update their exercise classification throughout the study to show that they were continuing, uh, continuing to exercise at that level? Uh, we did ask them to fill out, has your exercise pattern changed? But the analysis is based on just their baseline classification. So we classified them once. And from there, you know, we, we, we put them into groups that way. Great. Thank you. So uh, here's who enrolled. Basically, we had um, 699 vigorous patients and 961 who fell into either the sedentary or moderate groups. We had originally planned, actually, to, to group the moderate and vigorous, but luckily we had um, quite a few vigorous patients enroll, so we were able to really pull them out to answer the question we cared most about, which is the safety of vigorous exercise. So we compared the vigorous exercisers to the non-vigorous, and then we also broke down the vigorous into competitive and non-competitive. Overall, about 20% were under 25, about 70% were over 25, two-thirds male. Um, here's the racial breakdown. We had um, about 40-some percent who had, were genotype positive, and then um, some that were negative, and many that, had, of course, had not yet been tested. Um, and we did, uh, we did uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, we did enroll some phenotype negative patients, but there were not a lot of those. Um, there were overall 8% in the group uh, as a whole. Um, so here's uh, more information about the group. We be, uh, So here, uh, apical morphology, um, slightly more in the vigorous group. Cardiac arrest was actually more in the vigorous. Uh, maximal wall thickness did differ um, statistically, although uh, numerically it really wasn't very different. Uh, 20 millimeters in the vigorous versus 21 in the non-vigorous. As far as um, known risk factors for our rhythmic endpoint, the only two that actually differed between the groups was this very small difference in maximal wall thickness and um, history of cardiac arrest. And so it's and interesting to me that, um, that number one, a fairly high percentage had a primary prevention ICD, which uh, defines a higher risk group of patients um, before we get to the results. And also that a um, fairly high percent were not only participating in vigorous exercise, but competitive uh, uh, vigorous exercise. So we did have a fair number of ICD patients, more, I think, than the general population of HCM patients in the community. It was about 40%. It did not differ between the groups, so it didn't bias the results in any way. But um, it, it is a high number here. And I think whether that's because um, based on prior data, more individuals with ICDs are choosing to be vigorous and those are, you know, tended to be over uh, represented in the study, 
or whether that's related to kind of who, you know, who who tended to enroll patients, we don't really know. But we uh, it was balanced, though, between the two groups. And then we did have a fair number that described themselves as competitive as well. Yeah. Um, this uh, just I'll give you a little more information about the competitives. I didn't put it on a slide, but um, this is really everyone that self-described themselves as competitive. We did ask patients to uh, describe whether what level they were competing. So were they playing in the league, just on the you know competing on their own, like in a marathon? Were they actually on a team, and what level they were competing at? So um, I didn't pull out the data uh, on a separate slide. Um, but we did have 56 uh, young people. So we we did look at the group that would be the most highly competitive, like interscholastic athletes. So um, between age 14 and 22, we did have 56 athletes competing at a varsity um, or traveling team, high level competition between age 14 and 22, of whom 42 of the 56 were phenotype positive. So we had a, a fair number of highly competitive young people, and we did compare them as well. Uh, we did pull them out as well and compare them to the uh, similarly aged individuals who were not uh, athletes. Yeah, and one thing, as you pointed out, over 40% of patients in both groups uh, had a provocable outflow tract obstruction as well. So uh, yeah. a group of patients that we might consider higher risk for events such as syncope during exercise, but uh, uh, 40% um, had a provocable gradient. That's This is a really interesting uh, um, patient cohort. Yeah, so not I would not say it was a low risk cohort. I agree, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think mostly, uh, most of the patients that were higher risk, I think did have defibrillators, um, but it was, not, uh, it was not a low risk group. Right. All right, so here's our results. So as far as our total composite endpoint, Basically, uh, overall, we had 77 events, which corresponds to 15.6 per thousand patient years. And these really differed not at all between the non-vigorous at 15.3 per thousand patient years and 15.9 for the vigorous. And as you can see here in the Kaplan-Meier curve, um, looking at the probability of, um, of freedom from the composite endpoint, basically the two lines are pretty much superimposed. So this takes us to the hazard ratios um, as a way of really uh, defining the comparison. So in our primary analysis, which looked at all of the patients, which is comparing vigorous to non-vigorous, the hazard ratio for any of the composite endpoints was 1.01. Now, we had set this up as a non-inferiority analysis, uh, hypothesizing that the vigorous exercise would not be inferior to non-vigorous exercise with a uh, uh, an inferiority boundary of 1.5, and we did meet that boundary. So we were able to stay with statistical uh, confidence that uh, the vigorous, uh, vigorous exercise was not higher risk than non-vigorous exercise. Um, we did some secondary analyses as well. We looked at the, um, the pairwise comparisons between the different groups. You see some different point estimates, but basically they're all pretty much clustered around one. We also, to look at the competitive athletes, we took out the vigorous non-competitive and compared the competitive to everyone else, and uh, again, did not find a, a difference in the main results. We also took out the phenotype negative individuals. Um, we had uh, we thought it was important at the, to, to include them. Um, we can talk about why um, a, a little later, but we, we did include them, but we also wanted to see what the data looked like without them. And so uh, here we see the hazard ratio again is almost identical, 1.06 without the phenotype negatives. And then when we look at the, uh, we took out the symptomatic patients and again found uh, really similar hazard ratios throughout. 
One of the things that's important to to uh, think about too is that um, this was set up as a non inferiority, uh, but there was no no superiority found for either non vigorous or vigorous exercise in any subgroup. Very consistent findings across all of your subgroup comparisons, which uh, yeah. certainly reassuring uh, um, uh, as we try to uh, think about generalizing some of these findings. Yeah, and uh, you know something that will be um, coming out as well in the. Uh, that we we presented at the time of the abstract as well. Among the 42 phenotype positive high-level athletes, there was one event which was less than the number of events in the moderate and sedentary in that same age group. So we didn't have enough of those young people um, to talk about statistics, but we were also able to say very low incidence rate in that group. So in conclusion, I, um, in this prospective study of 1,660 individuals with HCM or genotype positive, phenotype negative, which was 8%, those engaged in vigorous exercise did not experience a heightened risk of death, cardiac arrest, appropriate ICD shock, or arrhythmic syncope compared to individuals engaging in low to moderate intensity physical activity. Um, individuals who were participating in high intensity sports, uh, also we did not see a heightened risk. The overall event rates were low, with less than 5% experiencing the composite endpoint over three years. Post hoc analysis limited only to those with overt HCM showed similar hazard ratios, and in neither the primary patient population or any subgroup was either vigorous or non-vigorous shown to be safer. So, you know, I think really the take-home message from, from these data, um, these data will inform discussions between patients and physicians regarding vigorous exercise in the context of expert assessment and management of HCM using an individualized shared decision-making framework. And these data uh, do not support universal restriction of vigorous exercise in patients with HCM. That's an amazing study and, and really important, I think, as we think about uh, counseling patients with regard to exercise. Were there any, um, aside from some of the, the, the characteristics of the patients, were there any surprising findings that were unexpected to you that, that you thought, uh, I, I was not anticipating that? Not so far. You know, I think our, you know, we, we, our primary uh, findings were pretty much what we had hypothesized. You know, we, we went into the study with, as I said, a non-inferiority hypothesis. And so, you know, I think um, we, were, we were pleased to see that did play out. Um, you know, I think one point I, I just would want to emphasize again is this um, concept of expert assessment and management of HCM. The vast majority of our patients either were uh, enrolled by a high volume center or had been seen in one. And so, you know, I think that uh, we can feel confident that they had been appropriately risk assessed. If they needed a defibrillator, they had gotten one. And so I think it's really in that context that we should be talking about um, exercise with our patients. You know, it really should be um, HCM experts having that conversation. Are there any plans to follow any of these uh, participants longer term? To see, yeah, uh, we're hoping to do that. Um, we are we we are hoping to have we have a IRB approval for a long term uh, follow up, and we'll be hoping that we get funding for that as well. Yeah, I think these results will be very useful to all of us who take care of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You know, from the uh, extreme of some patients coming in saying they've been told that they shouldn't walk up a flight of stairs. This is really at the at the other uh, uh, leading edge to say, well, you can actually not only do moderate level of physical uh, uh, exercise, but in the right context for the right patient, it may be safe to participate in even vigorous. Uh, um, and as you said, the most important thing is 
the careful risk assessment and the shared decision making. But I think your results show that there are many patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who are very interested in doing vigorous exercise and are doing it on their own uh, um, uh, and, and having data to support the safety in the right context is, is so important. And, you know, I think when you you bring up about the restriction and whether they were doing it on their own, we did ask the question as part of our online, you know, baseline surveys, what does your doctor tell you about exercise? And overall, the both the vigorous and the non-vigorous groups, 80% told us that at least one doctor had told them that they should not be exercising vigorously. So they were doing it anyway. But I think, um, you know, with these data, hopefully two patients will talk more openly with their physicians. Physicians will feel more comfortable talking to their patients. So we won't have patients, you know, running around uh, behind their doctor's back, uh, you know. <laughs> feeling I think guilty, it, it feeling guilty that, about it, right. Right. I think it will help with that open communication. This has been fantastic. Uh, I've learned a lot. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lampert, for uh, sharing these results with us and, and spending time with us. Um, uh, and I think this is really going to, to help not only providers, but patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So thank you again. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for uh, your interest in the study and inviting me to speak with you today. That was Dr. Rachel Lampert and Dr. Andrew Wong. For more information on this study, please click the slides in the show notes or visit hcmsociety.org podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Airfluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.